from East Kentucky, born and raised, so I have grown up watching media images of the place I grew up my whole life. So I think this is a film that's in my bone, and or in my bones, and in my blood. We actually have a serious uh, intro this week, as opposed to last week when we talked about big dog shirts. So, oh, real quick before we jump into it, so uh, my mom, <laughs> my mom listened to the show like I told you she would, oh, right? And she she listened she listened on Tuesday, and we got to talking on something, and she said <laughs> she was like trying to be sarcastic to me, but she's not very good at being sarcastic. But it's uh, a gift. All of a sudden she goes. All of a sudden she goes. Uh, I said I'll talk to you later. She goes. All right, big dog. <laughs> And she she confirmed those shirts the, those were real like those were legit and uh, that she she told me that uh, she picked them up all the time at yard sales for fifty cents. That's a deal considering they're like twenty dollars retail. So yeah, exactly. But it was so funny because she remembered exactly what we were talking about. Good. I'm I'm glad that it really resonated with her because it certainly resonated with me. It's a big, big, important part of my childhood. I remember rolling into seventh grade thinking I was total hot shit because I had a fresh cut big dog shirt, a pair of American Eagle cargo shorts, and an American Eagle puka shell necklace. <laughs> Looking back on it, um, I'm not surprised that nobody wanted to date me. So, <laughs> Anyway... Speaking of detestable things like my style in seventh grade, detestable things happening in Kentucky, Big John, Rowan County, in fact, Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky. So this is brought to our attention late last week. Uh, unfortunately, it was pretty late. This, I guess, has been going on for a while, but we didn't really know about it, um, like I said, until last week. But basically, here's the situation. There is a mobile home park in... Uh, Moorhead, Kentucky, in Roan County, pretty rural part of the state. It's called North Fork Mobile Home Park. And it's been around there for a while. There's a lot of families that live there just trying to get by, have roofs over their heads. And um, wouldn't you know it, John, the owner of this mobile home park, the property owner, I guess you could say, decided that uh, they wanted to sell it. And they decided to hatch a deal with this guy named Patrick <laughs> she's so pissed your dog's your dog is already raising hell and i'm it, here for it bonnie's pissed. she doesn't like when people do these types of things no i look bonnie is og she's <laughs> oh bosley just heard about it yeah you know he's usually he's usually uh the last to hear about it but he's he's always going to be the loudest once he's in there it's it, no less passion just hard of hearing he's the last guy to hear about it but he always wants to be the front man that's him but the first guy to post on Facebook about it. Exactly. Everybody else is like, don't say anything. Like, you know, we're just trying to get by and everything. And then he's the first one to be like, I found this out. It was me. <laughs> Can you believe this? <laughs> all caps. All caps. It's time for an all caps. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I I appreciate the enthusiasm of the dogs. So the property owner of the mobile home park decided to contact this guy who... Uh, his name is Patrick Madden, and by all accounts, he is uh, a USDA-certified platinum-grade fucking asshole. He's a developer, um, and he is buying, or has bought, rather, the 
land where the mobile home park is, and he's going to build it into a strip mall, John. Now, last I checked, and look, I'm not a professional in real estate. Um, I don't even own my own house, so take it for what it's worth, but a shitty strip mall versus homes for human beings, I'm going to go on the side of the homes. Yeah, this is, I was really sad to hear this. This is happening more more and more. Oh, I mean, it's one of those things. And the, the problem is, it's exactly um, kind of like the thing that we talk about all the time, like rural Appalachians or rural people who just don't have a ton of money to put up a legal fight. So they don't have the ability to just throw in a ton of lawyers as this guy probably does. I'm sure that they're getting help pro bono from somebody, which is great, but it's still really hard when you're going up against a team of attorneys versus yourself. Uh, and I'm just making that assumption just based off of filings. Um, but this is, again, I am all for making some a place better, right? Like today I passed by a house being redone in Parkersburg. If you don't know, like Parkersburg has a lot of abandoned homes. Like it, it's really bad. A lot of fires happen there. But there's been some developers coming in and buying those homes and fixing them up. I understand that, you know, gentrification has this, these issues. But when that happens... In my opinion, that's good for the community. You get those abandoned homes taken care of and you make it a better, you know, a safer place. But this isn't like that to me. This is the dark side of gentrification. Yeah, well, I think there's there's problems with even what you mentioned, but this is just purely to try to turn a profit by putting up commercial uh, um, retail outlet space. And more so is is the people, I mean, generally mobile home parks are lower income. And even if you're not lower income, it's really hard to just pick your stuff up and move. And honestly, like by most accounts of the people who live in this mobile home park, by all accounts, the residents, all they're asking is for more time and more compensation to uproot their lives. And I believe they were given 45 days. Can you imagine just being told today, John, you have 45 days to move, find somewhere else. Good luck. Cause we're going to bulldoze your house and put a, um, a target. It's hard to even move in 45 days after you've like sold your house. That's still really tough. So I can't imagine somebody just walking in and being like, well, today's the day people, you know, uh, clock's ticking. And especially in this, it, right now in this housing market, can you imagine what's going on? Like, hey, look, we recently joined TikTok and I've seen a bunch of these videos, like um, brokers and real estate agents have made these videos of like a bunch of clients coming in at like $65,000 over and still being like 30th in line, right? Like it, it's that type of market right now. So these people are not going to be able just to go and move that quickly. Yeah, it's absurd. If they, well, if they and, have the and, money to even buy a home. Right, know. exactly. If they even have the money. And I, I, well, the other thing is just the more morality of this, right? You're essentially telling these people to go fuck themselves. People who are, again, are probably on the lower income spectrum who have made their lives. Some people, uh, so one of the stories I read was about a girl who's 10 years old and she spent six years of her life, so half of her life, in this uh, mobile home park and they're being evicted. And 
for really no good reason other than this guy wants to make a quick buck and he clearly doesn't care about anything about these people. All he cares about is making money. And this is what's so sick about all this because sadly, this is legal from my understanding. Now, there are going to be legal challenges to this. I know like the the Kentucky um, Equal Justice Center, I think, has filed a lawsuit or has filed for an injunction or something. But, I mean... The fact of the matter is, if it's land owned by a person and they want to sell that land, they can sell that land in most cases. And it's it's horrible. And there should be protections against this because, again, this is huge gentrification. This is like out the ass. And this is in a rural area, which is not typically where gentrification is, is associated with happening. But it just goes to show you can happen anywhere. These people's lives are going to be ruined just so this guy can make a quick buck. And it sickens me. It's disgusting. Yeah. I mean... This is the problem too, right? Like, I don't know that area. So like, I, I'm making assumptions. Like I've never been there to be honest with you. Um, but was there not another spot? Like, was this really the only place? That's what I wonder. Because look, I am all people. I know some people won't like me for this, but whatever. I, I am all for, trying to make your community better in terms and that includes like bringing stuff in uh to have access to like a, a shopping center for instance but i'm not for it when it comes down to things like this like was there no other development land because if you look like you know i'm going to use parkersburg for an in, you know for a, a a good example like you know there are there are plots that have been set aside essentially for retail and stuff like that they don't have to go and take people's homes so i'm wondering if that is actually there or not if it's not we have a big even bigger issue you know i'm sure that there's plenty of locations they could have built this i think the reason my understanding why they wanted it is because it's right off the highway okay he wants to build a strip mall at the i-64 exit and that's just that's purely like some dude that's trying to make money right yeah that and he doesn't care whose lives he's gonna ruin that's not acceptable then Absolutely not. It's fucked up. And it just goes to show you that these problems, I mean, gentrification is typically viewed as a urban problem, but in this case, it's not. You're going to see it more, too, in a rural area. Oh, for sure. For sure. Especially with those those communities right off the highway. Yeah. And I, I just recently learned, I'm not a tax expert, but I, I recently learned that um, Biden's implementing a certain tax. It's like $350,000 to go up to, I, I'm not even going to try and explain it. But anyway, I've heard that that has made uh, investors stop wanting to push money into like big infrastructure and they want to actually come in and buy like homes, for instance, build them up, make them more expensive. So they want to that's going to be the new investment route. So it's going to be even harder for people to find homes whenever this happens. And it's going to happen in cities around the country, especially ones that don't already have high prices for their houses because it'll drive up prices, but they can get it cheap when it first be, you know, when they first begin. Yeah. And sadly it already is to a huge extent. I mean, look, I lived in Nashville for five years and I'll tell you what there, you can, literally drive down the road and look to see where gentrification started and where it's happening currently. And it's, it's just like, it's sort of these, it's, it's, it's people just trying to make money and they don't care about the community around them. Look, I'm an Eagle Scout, Boy Scouts. 
had plenty of issues, 100%. But one thing they did get right is the principle of leave a place better than when you found it. If there's any, like that, that should be the principle that is applied to things like this. And when you go in and you ruin people's lives just to make money, and this guy's not even from there. He's from Lexington. He's not from Moorhead. He's not from Rowan County. He's from Lexington. So it's a, it's a guy who's outside that, that community coming in just to make some money off the people there and without any regard for these people's livelihoods. And, and it's disgusting. It's wrong. And uh, it's these types of things are so frustrating because, honestly, they happen so often. Yeah. And uh, it's funny that you, oh, it's funny that you were talking about, too, like um, that this is already happening because it makes me remember like um, – you know, uh, Parkersburg, which is a little town that doesn't, it's starting to have really high home values, but it didn't whenever we were buying a house. But now you're seeing a bunch of people come in, buy homes and flip them, which is not something that happened here very often. And now it's happening all the time. So you're right. It is happening even in um, places like this, you know, in West Virginia. Uh, so I think you're going to continue to see it. And we haven't had, you know, something like this happen, but it does not surprise me because when you look at the bottom dollar, that's all people care about when it comes to investment. You know, it's just, it's so sad. Yeah, I hate it. I really do. And I hate it for these people. That's, that's just heartbreaking. Follow this issue. They were, the families were supposed to be out by this past Friday. I haven't really seen a lot more information about it, but there is an account uh, on Twitter called at Fork Justice, at Fork Justice that has been posting semi-periodic updates. Check them out. Follow them. Follow uh, uh, Eastern Kentucky Mutual Aid, EKY Mutual Aid. I know that they're involved in this as well. And we'll stay on top of this because this is this is a travesty and it's shameful and it shouldn't be happening. But with that being said, John, we, uh, we have some announcements. We got one new patron this week. We do have a new one, uh, Matt joined us this week. Thank you so much, Matt. And thank you to everybody who remains with us. They continue to come along for this journey and everybody that will, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's cause of you all that we can continue to get better, produce better. We can have microphones like this. We can do things uh, that we want to do. And we have a lot of really exciting things coming up. Don't forget, uh, if you want to join patreon.com slash you can join for as little as $5 a month. Uh, and Chuck, I think this is the week we're dropping the new Flatwoods monster. Is that right? That is right. That is right. We uh, got a little bit delayed on that final one, but we'll be dropping it this week. So if you're at that $10 tier or above, hit that up 100%. And, uh, and it's great. I'm just, you know, throwing it out there. And we'll also have an exclusive. We'll also have an exclusive as well. But with that being said, let's get into our episode, John. We've got a great interview with a lovely person, Ashley York. Ashley is a director and producer um, who is from Eastern Kentucky originally. She lives out in California now. The reason why we had her on our show is because she directed and produced the documentary called Hillbilly, which is an incredible documentary. It is about Appalachia. It's a little bit about her life growing up in Appalachia. It touches on stereotypes perpetuated about Appalachia and the interesting complex and human dynamics about Appalachia. It is, um, it is a fantastic documentary. It's honestly one of, one of my favorites I've ever watched because I think within the first five minutes of watching it, I I was sitting there thinking, wow, I can relate to this so much. And Ashley does such a good job of telling telling a story both from her own perspective, as she is 
a, a subject, really the subject or one of the subjects of the film, but also the perspectives of so many other people in Appalachia, especially around where she's from, that are faces that aren't typically associated with Appalachia. So it, it this is definitely a documentary that I think is cut from the same cloth as this show and what it's seeking to do. Um, John, what was your thoughts? I watched that and I was shocked at how good it was, which it's not like me trying to push anything on them. It's just the fact that like these documentaries are hard to do. They're not easy. And then we come, come to find out it took five years to do this one. That's insane to me. And it was really funny because when I was watching this, I had written in my notes, Chuck will relate to her. John will relate to, to Silas, which is exactly how I felt. Like I knew that when I watched that, that you listening to her story, you'd be able to relate to that really well. And then, you know, when I was listening to Silas talk about, uh, you know, everything that he was going through and especially that moment, I don't know if you remember Chuck, but that moment, whenever he says, I always defend rural people, but I can't defend them from this because rural people did this. And I, it just hit me because like, it is hard to defend everything all the time. Mm. Yeah, and and for those of you who may not know, that that's a reference to Silas House, who is a prolific Silas House. author from e, from Eastern Kentucky, uh, one of the best in my opinion, and pro- also yeah, prominently definitely. featured in this documentary. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, well, let me just read. I want to read just a little snippet about the documentary to kind of give people an understanding of what it is, and then at the end of the show. Ashley mentions about how you can check out the film, but it's on Hulu. If you have Hulu, it's also on Amazon prime. We don't like Amazon, but it's fine. If you want to go there to watch that. Uh, and I think on a couple other platforms as well, hillbilly is a documentary film that examines the iconic hillbilly image in media and culture. It explores more than a hundred years of media representation of mountain and rural people and offers an urgent exploration of how we see and think about rural America. This movie is for anyone who is a hillbilly or anyone who knows one. So a fantastic documentary. Ashley did a phenomenal job. We had a really great conversation with her. And bonus, Dolly Parton's featured in it. So there you go. That's all you need to know. With that being said, Ashley York. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, I know that John is too. And um, boy, Hillbilly has has been mentioned to us so many times. I can't even count. So I'm I'm just really excited to to jump into it. And John's so excited, I guess, that he left. So we'll. Uh... <laughs> no, I'm excited too. I kept. It was one of those where I kept hoping. I felt like. You know, it was like a prom date. You know, I kept hoping you all would just ask me to come on to your podcast. And, you know, of course, I follow along on Twitter. And I know a lot of folks who have been on um, your podcast. And I've talked about it with Crystal Good and Silas House. And, you know, I, um, I'm i just, I'm a big fan. So I'm glad. Oh, wonderful. Finally- yeah. It was on our list for a long time. It was just, we got, we just, we ended up getting really busy. And this is neither of ours full-time jobs. So it takes a little little bit of some maneuvering to get everything scheduled. So one thing we like to ask our guests when they come on is to tell us a little bit about where they're from, which is a perfect thing for you because that's in a lot of ways what your your documentary is about. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about where you're from in Kentucky. I am from, you know, it's interesting. Um, 
I grew up in rural Kentucky in Mead House Holler, which is something that I did not tell anyone until I started making this film. So, you know, had you asked me where I was from when I was 18 years old or when I had first moved to Los Angeles, I would have told you that I was from Pikeville, Kentucky, which is the, um, the urban center of East Kentucky um, where, I, where I grew up. But I, um, you know, I grew up in the head of a holler. We were the last house in the head of the holler. Uh, my grandfather uh, referred to it as the sticks. So, um, you know, very rural. Um, specifically, I lived in Kemper, Kentucky, which is, um, you know, a, a teeny tiny town in, um, in East Kentucky, right over the West Virginia border, right over the Virginia border, you know, right in that pocket there of um, Southern Appalachia. Wonderful. Yeah, it was you, so and we'll we'll definitely get into your documentary obviously, but I wanted to I'm probably going to butcher this quote. I think it was at the end of it, but you had mentioned something about not truly realizing or appreciating where you're from and apologies again for for butchering this uh, until you leave. And then sometimes you also need to come back and listen to people to really truly understand it. And that really resonated with me because I grew up in West Virginia and I think kind of grew to resent it while I was growing up there. And it wasn't until I left and moved up to Michigan for law school that I really truly appreciated where I was from. I'm wondering if you, you had a similar, I guess, uh, epiphany or, or, or recognition of that yourself and when that kind of happened. Sure. Um, Chuck, I had a shared experience uh, like you and like so many of us who grow up in Appalachia, you know, in the film Silas House, the brilliant Silas House tells a story about how he works with a lot of young people and how they want to escape the region as soon as possible because they're ashamed of where they're from. They're ashamed of the way they talk. Uh, based on all of these representations that we see over and over in magazines and the movies and on television. So I am not unique in in that way. I, um, you know, my youngest memory of seeing myself represented on TV was when I was a nine-year-old kid and there was this special and it was, um, everybody was talking about it, but nobody was talking about it, right? Like we all knew it was happening. And the next day at school, there was this sense of like, oh my gosh, like we were all felt so ashamed, but there was no like critical discourse about it. And I think from that moment on, you know, like that was the inciting incident for making Hillbilly. Although I didn't say, hey, I'm going to make a film someday when I'm in my early 30s after I have, have left for a while. But I definitely had that shame. I mean, when I uh, left the holler, um, I was 18 years old. I moved to Lexington, Kentucky, where I was accepted into the University of Kentucky. And I was a journalism major and I was very ambitious and active. And I was working for the student newspaper, for the student radio. You know, I was interviewing a lot of people. And, you know, I was shocked when I started to experience certain people's reaction to the way that I talked. And these were fellow Kentuckians, you know, people from northern Kentucky, you know, people who, you know, regarded themselves as different from the East Kentuckians like me. So when you ask, where are you from? You know, that's another um, thing. I used to always say I'm from East Kentucky. And sometimes I still say that, but, you know, I'm sort of always negotiating. Well, what does it mean, you know, when we identify as being from East Kentucky or from rural Kentucky or an Appalachian? 
which I also did not identify as an Appalachian until I, um, you know, made the film. And, you know, I'm a, a bit hesitant about that just because of the connotations with Appalachia and certainly, um, you know, the whiteness that's implied when we talk about Appalachia. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of that and it's complicated, but, um, you know, I'm from rural Kentucky. Yeah, I would, I, this listening to you is just so interesting because it, it reminds me a lot of my own experience in different ways. It's interesting that you, you kind of had some interesting reactions from other people in Kentucky. Um, that's really interesting to me personally, just like thinking about accents. Um, and there's so many things that I'm thinking of right now that come up in the, in the film. So why don't we just jump into it? Cause there's, I don't know when I watched this, when I watched Hillbilly first, the moment I started watching, I'm like, God, I can relate to this so much. And so much of this is, you know, an experience that I've had or, or a similar experience or dealing with family members that are like this. I'm kind of curious, what was that moment that compelled you to do this, to tell kind of your story, but also the story of the region or of where you're from in the region, central Appalachia, and, uh, and kind of just that pr thought process for you. That's a huge undertaking. Um, well, as I mentioned, I, the seed was planted when I was that nine-year-old kid watching Dan Rather tell the world about East Kentucky, Floyd County specifically, right? So right. You know, this was a program, you know, the, the highest echelon of news making, um, you know, came to our town and, and told this story that like horrified us all because of the stereotypes that it was perpetuating. So the seed was planted when I was a nine-year-old kid. So fast forward, you know, a decade later, I move away, I go to the University of Kentucky, I study journalism, I learn about feminism, I learn about gender studies, I learn about racial justice for the first time. And, you know, everything that I came to care about really solidified at the University of Kentucky. That university changed my life and, you know, my opportunity um the opportunity that I had to tell stories and to work with people and to just really explore, you know, my own curiosity as a human being um, and to, and to learn how to think critically. So then I go to Los Angeles to uh, go to film school at the university of Southern California. Um, when I was 22, I moved to, to LA and started working and it was probably, you know, I don't know, 10 years later, when when I finally became ready to embark on the journey of making the film. And that was inspired, you know, there were two media examples that happened in that in that contemporary moment of like 2007, 2008. And that was uh, the show Buckwild, which was this MTV series that, you know, comes out, they're promoing it, that show was very carefully designed to take the place of Jersey Shore, you know, one of their hit shows. Oh, yeah. Where they've got the, the corporate sponsors. You know, this is a huge moneymaker for the MTV Corporation. And at this point, you know, I had been working. I moved to L.A. at 22. Um, you know, I had been working in the industry about six or seven years. So I had developed an understanding of how the industry works and how these shows get developed and cast and the research and, you know, the way that the corporate partners come in and the way you pitch and the way you have to present things in a certain way. So my understanding of the media culture had evolved in that sense, you know, so that when Buck Wild came out, it just annoyed me. It made me so mad. I had just started teaching at the University of Southern California at that time. I still teach um, there, which, you know, is a very important part of my practice. And I remember talking to the students about it. I remember showing them the Buck Wild trailer. Um, 
I didn't even want to watch the show, but I, and, I, and I saw it on a plane. I had to fly up to San Francisco to do a meeting at ITBS. And I remember it was on, it was a JetBlue flight. You know, they had the TVs on the back of the, the seat. It was one of the first airlines to do that. And I remember seeing McDonald's, this giant hamburger, you know, so I knew like, oh my God, they've got like the biggest sponsor in the world. Like, and this was just all constructed, you know, this series filmed in West Virginia, you know, showing these kids who can't regulate, who don't have phones, who are just running wild and partying. And, um, you know, this is what life in West Virginia is like. When I knew, like, okay, sure. Like, yes, people like to party. We loved to party when we were kids. We would camp out and we would four-wheel on top of the mountains. But we also, like, went to college and we read books and we, like, had questions about the world that we lived in and we weren't just all these walking stereotypes. So, you know, that just really upset me. And, you know, again, I was in the the context of an academic environment. I was in the context of working as a producer. I had started to make my own work. Um, I started making a film about some folks that I went to high school with who are currently in prison for murder for life. So that started taking me back home and having me, you know, just look at where I grew up in a different way, you know, look at how the Christian establishment, you know, had affected, you know, these young people from my hometown or their relationship to Christianity, I should say. So, you know, there were a lot of things that came together. Um, and then Orange is the New Black, a series that I adore um, on, on Netflix. You know, this series comes out. You know, I was interested in the experiences of people who were in prison. Of course, I'm watching this show. It is so progressive in the way that it's representing women and non-binary folks and sexuality and gender expression and race. I mean, the show was just doing so many important things, but here comes your rural character, Pensatecki, and she is just every stereotype in one character and her name even, the fact that her name is Pensatecki, that she's intersecting all of these Appalachian regions and her whole storyline was just anchored in, she shoots up an abortion clinic um, you know, she's just, you know, it was just, it was like the, the writers in that room, they just didn't have an understanding of like all of the issues and the intergenerational issues and the complexities and nuance of Appalachia. So, you know, the film in a, in a large part was made with that audience in mind, you know, that we wanted this film to be a resource that professionals could look at and that could just make the point that you know we should be more mindful and respectful and conscious of the way that we represent people from rural communities people from Appalachia the same way that we represent you know any marginalized or vulnerable person so that's a very long answer to your question (laughs) but you know it was a long process and um it, it, it but it was so necessary you know, and it took me a long time to get ready and to find the courage and then to partner. Um, you know, I must give credit to Sally Rubin, my directing partner on the film, and she's a producer also on the film. And Sally's mother's from East Tennessee. And, you know, she grew up going to East Tennessee. She grew up, she was lived in Boston, but she would go back to where her mom was from. She loved the area. She knew that her mother had shame because she was from East Tennessee. You know, she had moved to Boston and needed to, you know, escape her dialect and her relationship to it as well. So, you know, we had a shared sensibility in that way and, you know, teamed up. She was also very annoyed by the Orange is the New Black um, uh, Appalachian character, Pensatucky. And we, um, we decided to make the film. 
it's funny that you mentioned Buck Wild because we've talked about how uh, we we didn't like Buck Wild when it came out. Like like I was so upset. I wrote a letter to Joe Manchin saying that he needed to talk out about these stereotypes being perpetuated by one of the biggest media outlets out there. Uh, and so, I mean, I was trust me, I was pissed too. The funny thing is, though, through our discussion of Buck Wild, we then met Kara from Buck Wild, Kara Parrish, and it. To, you know, it turns out Kara has turned into one of the biggest advocates for Appalachia out there. So it's just crazy to see that, you know, that change, because obviously when you're watching that show, you're like, OK, that's not what this person's going to end up. But but Kara's, a, you know, she's a rock star now. She's killing it for the region. She's doing everything she can. So I think that that's it is a good example of why people get upset with these stereotypes. And it's also a cool transition to see like that these stereotypes really aren't real and this is the real person behind it. So I do find that to be a, a pretty interesting um, example of it. And I, I saw it in the, in the documentary and I wanted to mention it because I think that that's really cool. The thing that I always wonder, because this, this to me is always a tough part. Like obviously like we fight against Appalachian stereotypes all the time, uh, but as a creator and as somebody who brings people on and interviews them, you have to worry about not perpetuating those stereotypes yourself. Like you have to make sure that, you know, the editing is done right or, or the way that you're discussing things is correct. And it's tough. How did you, as somebody who's making a documentary, go about trying not to perpetuate stereotypes while also discussing, you know, some of the real things that are happening here? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, and just one more point about Buck Wild. I appreciate yeah. you mentioning that experience with Kara. I don't believe we interviewed her. I don't. I don't remember um, intersecting with her. Um, you know, most of our attention was on Shane Gandy, who right. you know died so tragically and so young, and um, you know it's so heartbreaking. Um, you know what happened to him, which his mother and you know sister um, took time to interview with us and. You know, we went really deep with his story. But I do want to note that just because it was a show that came out and bugged me and, you know, inspired me to do something and to use my voice as somebody who grew up there, had a personal experience with this, and also was in the media world, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to say something and to do something. You know, even though I had run away from Appalachia, you know, I sort of, you know, like you, Chuck, I had developed that sense of like, I don't ever want to go back. I, this place, forget it. You know, I need to not speak like I'm from there. You know, I've been discriminated against because of this. I've been made fun of right to my face. Like I just, um, you know, like I had to change in that way, you know, and that was a process in and of itself. It took us five years to make, um, you know, to make the film. But, um, you know, the point is, is that both of those things can coexist, right? Like a show can be harmful as far as the MTV Corporation, you know, doing what it's doing so carefully and so orchestrated, um, you know, to sell ads, you know, but it can also be a great experience for the people who are in the show. I mean, I've produced a ton of television in the, the 18 years that I've been in Los Angeles, and I've certainly... Um, you know, uh, not all shows are equal, but, um, you know, I know that there are shows that sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm just doing this for a paycheck. But on the other side of that, the people who are participating, it's like the greatest thing that ever happened to them, you know, to like have their story be recognized and told and, you know, to work with people, professionals from Los Angeles who come in to tell their story. So, you know, both of those things can, can be true. And I certainly know, uh, from talking to other people about Buck Wild, that there were 
were people who had positive experiences, people who, um, you know, I'm sure like Kara, who learned something and who are using that for their own activism. So, you know, we never know where inspiration is going to come. And, you know, I think that's the beauty uh, of, of humanity, right, is that we're always growing and evolving and we learn and we unlearn and um, you know, that that's very meaningful. Um, but for us, you know, when we started the film, I mean, of course, uh, the first rule was do no harm. I mean, that's my rule with everything that I make. Um, you know, I don't want to be in the business of, you know, feeling, you know, people feeling like they trust me to tell their story. And then it all of a sudden becomes something else or something they don't recognize or, you know, if they feel misled or misrepresented in some way. I mean, that is, I grew up seeing that my whole life as a person from Appalachia. So um, as part of my practice as a journalist and filmmaker, you know, I didn't want to do that. So, um, you know, the first thing we did when we said, okay, we're going to make this film, we uh, learned about the Appalachian Studies Association Conference, which is this annual event that happens uh, it rotates to various to various universities in Appalachia every year. In 2014, we went to Marshall, West Virginia. To, sorry, in 2014, we went to Marshall University, which is in Huntington, West Virginia, and we attended our very first Appalachian Studies Association conference. Before we went, you know, we looked at the program and we learned that there's this incredible world of people who study Appalachia, they study the issues, they study the social movements, they study the, the issues of racial justice, of women's issues, of, I mean, just any, the environment. I mean, you know, people who have dedicated their lives to studying Appalachian culture. So, you know, that was very eye-opening, you know, to learn that there were all these scholars and writers and activists who um, were doing such important work and were able to articulate these issues in a way that I could only dream of at that point. So Sally and I, you know, we, um, we, we flew into um, Huntington, that amazing airport right there on top of the mountain. Um, I mean, it was a teeny tiny plane. Um, and we went to the conference. We met a lot of the folks that we would um, work with throughout the production. You know, people like Barbara Ellen Smith, who is featured in the film, who makes that incredible comment about, um, you know, progressives and how progressives need to be really conscientious of how they're talking about poor white people. Um, you know, we met Emily Satterwhite. Silas House was the keynote speaker that year. And, you know, Sally had worked with him on her prior film and he was open to working with her. They had had a great experience. And, you know, I remember the moment I met him. I mean, of course, I knew about Silas and, you know, I knew he was a, you know, a very prolific and respected writer in the region, but I hadn't got to experience his work. But the moment I met him and, you know, I was putting the microphone on him because he was doing the keynote and we just stood there for a moment. And he was like, whatever you all need, I want to participate. And his beautiful piercing blue eyes and just the way that he spoke and then hearing him deliver this keynote with his accent, like unfiltered and unaffected. I mean, that was one of those moments in my life, you know, that was so transformative. And, um, you know, it was just so um so meaningful. The dog, yeah, sorry, my pups, 
my, my dogs are my my dogs I, are about to go. I, nuts. I know. Yeah. It was like her little toes are tapping, so that's why I pause. <laughs> She's looking for the cat food. No, that's okay. Um, so you know, in that um, you know that conference was so important for us and for our process. I mean, the people we met, you know, we continue to collaborate with and to talk with, and you know, they were just guiding us every step of the way. So if we were looking to connect with the person who wrote this book, they could help us make an introduction. They served as humanities advisors to us on the uh, grant applications that we that we did. You know, we were so fortunate to have the support of the National Endowment for Humanities for Hillbilly. Without them, this film never would have gotten made probably. You know, they, they trusted in us. They believed in us. They believed in our vision and gave us a development grant and a production grant. So, um, you know, like the arts matter, humanities matter. Matter. These funds matter, um, you know, for for creatives. I mean, this wasn't the kind of film that Hollywood was like, yep, you know, we'll give you all the money you need to make it. I mean, it was very difficult for us to try to raise money through traditional means because of that bias. And, you know, when you hear about the, the liberal media on the coast, they're not always the most welcoming and friendly to people mm-hmm. who want to tell a story based on, you know, a community that they have a ton of stereotypes in their mind about. So, um, so that conference was important and, you know, just really reaching for like my heroes. I mean, when I learned that bell hooks was a Kentuckian and that she, and I also had a shared experience, you know, when I read her book belonging, she talks about going back home to live out the rest of her life, you know, and how she had to run away from where she was from in order to find her voice. And that is, you know, directly connected to that last comment that I make in the film where I say, sometimes you have to leave to find your voice. And sometimes you have to go back for a deeper understanding. I mean, that is directly inspired by um, Bell Hooks, who is the greatest influence perhaps in my life, you know, as a person, as a human, as a scholar as a media maker like I just I am so um, inspired by her and her work and her courage and um, you know the opportunity to interview her oh my gosh was like one of the greatest one of the greatest days of my life we got to do two interviews with her you know but of course the, and they were both phenomenal um, but the day that we got to you know when she invited us into her home in Berea Kentucky um, you know I just I felt so so grateful yeah yeah that's it. You mentioned something too that I, I wanted to talk about because on this show, we've been very open about, um, you know, Chuck and I, we both lean left somewhat. And um, there seems to be this almost negative connotation that's coming out of progressives and in the Democratic Party almost that uh, kind of looks down on the region. And I thought that part of part of your uh, discussion, I can't remember her name. Uh, you all were talking to her on election night. She, she says it's 11 o'clock. You know, I can't, I can't remember her name, but off the top of my head, she says, uh, they look down on us cause, cause we vote Republican, but if we didn't vote Republican, they'd look down on us because of drugs. And then they'd look down on us because we're drunk. Um, and I thought that that was like the, to me, one of the biggest parts of the, the documentary. Cause I was like, that's a hundred percent right. So how do you, as somebody who uh, does come off as a more progressive person, I'm just guessing because of uh, supporting Hillary and everything like that. Uh, how do you, how do you balance that with, with maybe some people you're working with out in LA, you know, did you face those issues where you kind of have to roll, you know, kind of roll people back and 
tell them that that's what they're uh, perpetuating almost. Um, that woman is uh, Sam Cole. Okay, Sam that's, is yeah. um, a brilliant human being and writer. She's an associate producer on the film. She's also featured in the film. Um, sorry, just one moment. Let me shut the... Sorry, it's just a little, a little noisy for you. Let me know if we need to stop or anything. Um, so Sam, um, you know, she tells a very important truth there that, um, you know, when people have bias and when people, you know, discriminate, I think, sorry, let me try to wrap my head around what I want to say here. I mean, we made Hillbilly very separate from the industry. I mean, we were a very small unit. It was self-contained. We raised every dollar of that film on our own and through, you know, the National Endowment for Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, West Virginia Humanities, Ohio Humanities, South Carolina Humanities, Virginia Humanities, the Kentucky Foundation for Women gave us a grant, uh, Kentucky um, Humanities Council, like all of the money came through these councils. It was not a film that was made with any support from the Hollywood media establishment. So, you know, I mean, if anything, we just didn't, like nobody would give us money. Like we would apply and we would submit the materials and we would either get a, this film is not for us or just no response, which, you know, again, is, is, is common when you're a documentary filmmaker, <laughs> you, you know, you get told no a lot. So, um, you know, like, you know, and, and we knew that and that was hard, you know, certainly when you, when you know, like what the film will be and you know, you're not necessarily in a position to convey that the way you want to, like that was hard. Right. And that's just, you know, Ira Glass has that great story about the gap and how like, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're producing and you know where it's going to get to, but it's a long road to get there. And that was certainly the story with Hillbilly. I mean, it took us, like, again, it was a five-year process. And a lot of that had to do with financing because you can't, you know, go film if you don't have the resources. And, you know, another thing that was very important to us was having the visual integrity be preserved throughout the making of the film. Like, I was committed to having the film look beautiful, and to have gorgeous cinematography. I mean, it's a film about representations. So, you know, it was critical that it not feel amateur or low budget, you know, that we were able to work with a director of photography who we knew could honor the space and who could, you know, document it in a way that would have this high cinematic value. The, the director of photography, his name is Brian Donnell. He is a very gifted um person. He is a friend of mine. You know, we spend a lot of hours on the road, of course, <laughs> like when you're making a film like this, you got to be in the car a lot. So, you know, you need someone not only who is talented, but somebody who, you know, you can spend time with. And he's a Tennessean. He's from Nashville and cares deeply about Appalachia. And, you know, we just had such a great time, you know, running around, you know, from Georgia to Kentucky to West Virginia to Ohio. I mean, we, you know, we filmed all over um, the region. That's that's super interesting about all the things you talked about with financing, because um, I, I and we've talked to other documentary filmmakers who've had issues with that, too. And it's but it, I think it shows the resiliency of you and of your team for wanting to do this so much that you made it happen. So that's that's a really, really awesome thing you should be proud of. I'm, I'm curious, 
what the reaction has been from people who aren't from the region or maybe people from the the film media establishment that you speak of because I saw on the website it it certainly has been at least nominated and received a number of awards from different um, different film societies different uh, uh, groups and organizations I'm kind of curious uh, if people went into it with one preconceived notion came out with another or just what the general reaction from people who aren't familiar with Appalachia was that's a great question. I'm going to read you. Um, I'm going to read you some quotes after I. Um, I'm going to answer your question, but then I also want to read these quotes because I think they're really, um, you know, important. So we have, um, you know, again, when we set out to make the film, the goal was to make a film that would have commercial viability. You know, I mean, certainly, um, you know, this was my second film. I had made the film Tig, which we. Um, you know, also made independently, but we were able to get financing. Like we had to, you know, work on our own for about six months, which was substantial. And we shot most of that film in six months. Um, you know, but then that put us in a position to take the film out and to develop the film with a number of uh, potential financiers, including Paramount. Right. Um, you know, we ended up going with with Big Beach on that film. We made it. We premiered at Sundance and Netflix acquired it back when Netflix was still a DVD company. Um, so, you know, that was where I was as a filmmaker. So of course this film, like I wanted it to be big, I, you know, wanted it to go to, to someone like Netflix, you know? Um, so we, we make film, we get accepted into the Nashville film festival, uh, which was a terrific festival. We premiered there in, um, you know, April or May of 2018, um, you know, Dolly Parton uh, saw the film and she said it was wonderful. We were so grateful to um, to Dolly for her kind words about the film. And of course, she is, um, you know, featured in the film in archive. And the film started to make its way um, through the festival circuit. We showed at a festival in San Francisco. Um, we showed... Um, you know, we were accepted into Doc NYC. We screened, you know, at, at smaller regional festivals. Um, and then we got accepted to the Los Angeles Film Festival. And that was so exciting and so unexpected and so important because, you know, we wanted the film to reach urban audiences. Like we, of course, wanted to make a film that folks in the region could be proud of and folks in the region could see and not feel horrified or not feel like they're being made fun of or not feeling like, well, here's somebody who grew up there who left and who's, you know, telling some hateful story, you know, about her experience there and, you know, feeling like she had to leave to, you know, go be, um, you know, a, a journalist or a filmmaker. Um, you know, but the thing is, is, I was run out of my own state by my fellow Kentuckians, <laughs> you know, the way that some of those folks talk to me. My fellow journalism colleagues at the University of Kentucky, like, I mean, there's some of the most harsh comments I've received. And I've, I mean, I've received them like in LA too, right? Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, just some weird things that people do when they hear where you're from and they'll break out in song or start singing the Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, my God, I've sort of, I've seen it all. But, you know, the hardest ones perhaps were there in Lexington, Kentucky. And I often say, like, people are like, well, when you moved to LA, that must've been like some great culture shock. And I'm like, well, not really. Like when I moved to Lexington from East Kentucky, you know, two hours West, that was like this culture shock that I just, I didn't expect. It was, it was, it was hurtful. I mean, I was also at this point in my life where I was like discovering feminism and just critical theory, critical race theory. And, you know, like it was, I was transforming as a person, but I was also being met with 
um, you know, discrimination, like for the first time, you know, in my life based on, you know, where I was from in, um, in Eastern Kentucky. So, um, but, you know, the film, I mean, it has screened around the world. I mean, we, you know, from L.A. to New York City to the Frozen River Film Festival to the Boone, um, North Carolina Film Festival, San Francisco, Doc NYC, the Anchorage Film Festival. Um, we've screened at a lot of universities. There was a screening at Eastern Kentucky University where we had 800 people, our largest screening to date. Um, you know, we screened at the University of Southern California, where I teach, the University of Kentucky, where I studied. Um, the American Film Showcase picked up the film. That's a, a State Department program, uh, like the United States State Department. And it's curated by USC, and they show your film around the world. So they curate films that open discourse. And through that, we were able to do screenings in Prague, in Albania, in um, Colombia, South America. So no matter where we have shown the film, I mean, there's the traditional hater or the traditional this is liberal garbage because they come in and think the film is going to be one thing. But I love that comment. It's one of my favorite criticisms of the film. Wear that proudly. I think it's an Amazon uh, comment. Um, but 98% of the feedback that we've heard about the film is that it helps people understand a region of the world that they didn't know much about. You know, there was this woman, Justina Walford, who was the programmer at the Women's Texas Film Festival in Dallas, where we were also invited to screen very early on in our process. And when Justina talked about the film, she said, this movie changed my perspective. I had preconceived notions about Appalachian people, and this movie changed how I think. And, you know, I loved, yeah, I mean, I just, I love that. And, you know, I mean, I, I got a note from this fellow in Canada and he says, I'm actually a Canadian from Northern Ontario, but being a border city, we were very connected to our neighbors from the South, referring to the United States as the South, <laughs> the greater U.S. as the South. You know, we feel your pain and your glory and the Trump era concerned us. Your movie really helped us better understand how and why so many people have and continue to support him and the horrible ideologies he stood for. We love our neighbors and your movie helped me look past the people who voted and more at the why. I hope to see an update. You know, this documentary captures exactly what is happening in America right now. That's from someone in San Francisco. Someone in Prague said, it's rather similar here in the Czech Republic. Our president and prime minister have been dividing the country and they were voted for by people who were easily manipulated. Maybe there's some crisis of democracy in several countries all over the world. So, you know, I share all of that because, um, you know, we have just found that, you know, while so many of us, you know, like you, Chuck, saying you grew up there and you felt shame, like, you know, this is something that people feel all over the world. These personal stories, I mean, they become so universal. And that's the real magic and gift of, um, you know, making this film was I was so scared to, you know, involve my family, to involve myself, to bring my own personal narrative into this film because I felt like I had so much at stake and like I'm going to risk my career, you know, here in Los Angeles in some way. But, you know, like that's what growth is about, right? Like confronting those parts of ourselves where we're not sure or where we struggle or where we feel hurt or shame. And, you know, it's been so transformative for me and I'm so grateful and um, just the collaborations with, you know, all of the partners on the film, with the advisors, with all of the participants. I mean, what a life changing 
journey. You know, I, um, I really look forward to um, continuing the work. Well, I think that that is a, a perfect stopping point because I, I think that's a great wrap up. We, we really do appreciate you coming on, Ashley. Where can people learn either more about you or the documentary or where can people watch it? Uh, let our listeners know. Sure. Um, Hillbilly is available on Hulu. Um, so you can catch the film there. It is also available on Amazon. Hillbillymovie.com is our website. So you can, um, you can reach us there. There's a contact form and we get those emails and we respond to them. I love, you know, hearing from folks. That's where I, you know, heard from some of the folks that I just read you their comments. Um, we have a very interesting collaboration coming up with the Smithsonian who uh, commissioned Sally um, and I to make a short film based on the themes of Hillbilly. So that's going to be awesome. part of their um, exhibit that they're opening this fall called Futures. So we're really excited mm-hmm. to be able to, um, you know, continue the work and to come back to the region this summer to um, make a film that'll be in the Smithsonian. So um Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I I live in the DC area, so I'll have to check that out when it uh, when it comes out. Oh, it's great. Yeah, we'll have to. I'll have to make sure that we. Um, I'm not always the best at like following up and keeping up, you know, with folks because there's always so much happening. But you know, I would love to find a way to do that so that when we do come out, you know, you should come. It'd be great to to meet you. I mean, of course, they're unsure if you know they're going to be able to do in person stuff in November, but sure. that's that's the hope is that there will be some kind of reception and launch. And you Fingers know, we're crossed. we're one of many filmmaker, you know, they curated um, a bunch of us or commissioned a bunch of us to make short films about the future of America. So that's awesome. Well, Ashley, again, thank you so much for, for talking to us. I know I really love the documentary. I know John did too. And I know that we've heard such good things from all our followers and listeners. So we hope that uh, more people get a chance to experience it and really appreciate it like we did. Well, that's great. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, I have, um, I've had a baby since the movie, so you might have heard her in the, the background <laughs> and my pup, Lula. Um, I'll just mention that for your own sound editing if you need that. And um, what a pleasure. Again, I was so happy that you guys reached out. I'm such a fan. And, um, you know, I was just hoping you would ask me to, um, to come on your podcast um, at some point. So I can't wait to hear it and look forward to keeping in touch with you guys. And congratulations on all of your great work that you're doing. All right, John, I, uh, I might need to watch this documentary again. Uh, cause it was that good. I'm going to, um, my wife is going to watch it. We're going to watch it together. But I, uh, it, I was really struck by how, how hard it was to get the funding for the documentary and, and just how resilient Ashley and her team were with making sure that it happened. And that's something that is so important. It would have been so easy for her, for her team to give up on this project so many times and they didn't. And for that, I think we owe them a debt of gratitude. And, uh, and it just shows you how important this film was for her to, to tell this story. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when you listen to the interview, one of the questions that I asked was, how do you do something like this without perpetuating stereotypes? Because it's hard. Uh, Chuck, as you know, when we think about the show, like we have to be careful, too, because it's like, 
you know, we talk, we want to talk about things, but we have to do it in a way that we know that we can present it in a fair situation rather than try to, you know, essentially become JD Vance 2.0. And speaking of JD Vance, the funny thing about this is if you read or watch Hillbilly Elegy, you wouldn't think that there was a black person in Appalachia, but come to find out <laughs> why watching, you know, you watch Hillbilly and you see that there actually is a black community and it's a black community that's fighting to stay relevant. They, they want to be a part of this culture, but they have to kind of find their own way to do it. And, uh, you know, that's again, a huge thing that we always talk about that that book missed, but this documentary does a really good job of showing that there is diversity here. And not everybody is the same and not everybody thinks the same. And I think that that was really important. You had two competing sides. You had like the Trump voters from her family. You had Silas House and her who were on the liberal side. Uh, to me, it was like one of those things that you could finally look at Appalachia and go, huh, everybody's not the same there. Yeah, it, I think the way you frame that is really perfect because it it like what we try to emphasize on the show showed the complexity of it. It didn't just show you some whitewashed view of Appalachia showed you every aspect of it showed you Afrolachian poets which we've touched on briefly before but which was incredible it taught it showed people LGBTQ people which hardly ever in the national media get highlighted from Appalachia so I thought it was it's so important and I think that it deserves so much attention and so I really implore every single one of you who is listening to go and watch this you will not regret it Yeah. And if you're in college, tell your professors, hey, stop showing Hillbilly Elegy or stop having us read it. Show this instead, because this is the real this is the real thing. I wish that more people would do it. Heck, I might even I might even create maybe that's what we do, Chuck. We create an email list and we just email blast this thing out to all the professors saying, stop, stop showing Hillbilly Elegy. Stop making your kids read it. Watch this instead. Hell yeah. Let's do it. Speaking of doing it, let's do it, meaning the last segment of this show, as it always is. The last part of the show where John gets to air up all of his pent-up aggression from the past seven days, let it out like a trial balloon going into the sky, the monarch of meat, the baron of beef, the caliph of the center cut, beef with Big John. Ladies and gentlemen and gender non-binary folks worldwide, we are pleased to present to you the beefeating mouth of the South coming to you live from a foreclosed Ponderosa back-to-back buffet world champion beef with the Preacher! First off, I gotta say, I don't have beef with these people. Chuck, do you see my new hat? This new uh, hat. Kind of. It's. I mean, it just looks sort of blue with leather. Well, there's West Virginia. It says West by God. It's pretty cool stuff. Kinship Goods, who, if you remember, won the Appalachian Business of the Year in the Appalachia Appalachian Awards. I got and to. A, I got, and a prestigious award, yeah. Agreed. I got to go there for the first time ever. Really cool place. I just wanted to shout them out because they do a lot of really good work for the community in Charleston, uh, West Virginia. And they uh, honestly, they have shirts for everybody, not just people in West Virginia. You should, everybody should go check them out. Anyway, now to the beef. Chuck kind of mentioned that we're going to talk about uh, the Jim Justice situation in our exclusive. So if you want to hear that, go check it out. Patreon.com slash But my 
beef is an extension of that because again chuck i got beef with people who continue to use situations like the one with jim justice and turn them into a large stereotype about every appalachian person ever yay this is one of my favorite (laughs) things to talk about oh my god yeah so like if you haven't seen the video go check it out but anyway this video goes around and instead of people being like jim justice is uh, you know, he he wasn't ready to talk about this. He passed a or he signed a bill that he shouldn't have. Uh, you know, there was some talk of that, but instead, people were like, "Well, it's West Virginia." You know, no, this is to be expected. Everybody there hates trans people. Everybody there hates minorities. Everybody there hates you know, and that's not true. Uh, I, I understand that there is hatred. Not going to deny that. Plenty of hatred here, but not everyone is. There are a lot of allies. There are a lot of people fighting on the ground. There are a lot of people who could use your help if you're not in West Virginia. There, there are groups here that you could help. Uh, what is it? Fairness West Virginia. Great group that's doing a lot of great work that could really use your support rather than you posting on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok about how Jim Justice is just the personification of all West Virginians because that's not true. There are so many people who are affected by this bill. In fact, Chuck, I don't know if you saw uh, on my Twitter, I got a response uh, from one of our old high school science teachers, uh, Allison Shule. Miss Shule. She, she was, was also a uh, participant in our accent challenge. Oh, yes, she was. Anyway. Well, not our had, challenge, but our thing. Yeah. She had said, because um, Jim Justice had said, like, there's only 12 kids, you know, that this will affect. And she said, you know, that's funny. <laughs> Like like he's pulled that number out of his ass. Right. And she said, well, that's funny because that would mean I have six of them. So, so, you know, and she's like, and those are the people who are fully out about, you know, willing to discuss it and everything. But now think about that, Chuck. So many kids and we'll get into this Patreon. So many kids are going to be hurt by this way more than 12. And I I think Allison does a good job of talking about that in that tweet, just mentioning like there are more than that. She's always been woke. I'm a big fan. Big fan, yeah. And and she's a massive fan of my wife, way more than me. She always says, like, I got lucky, which is true. Uh, But anyway, Jim Justice is not West Virginia. Yes, Jim Justice won an election in which... Uh, what was it? 70% of the people voted. So another 30% didn't. And that doesn't even mean, I, I think he got, I don't remember his percentage and I'm not going to even try, but anyway, not everybody here sports Jim justice. Not everybody here thinks the way Jim justice does. And not everyone here thinks like their Senator does. We have a misconception that just because people voted Republican, that they voted, you know, for hatred. I don't always believe that. I think that again, I think people vote Republican to not vote Democrat a lot of the times. Um, and, and I think we miss that sometimes and I get it. You have to hold people accountable. I am 100% with you on that. I'm not 100% with you on saying that all of West Virginia is filled with hate. Cause that's not true. Exactly. So this is something that is a personal grievance of mine, a personal pet peeve of mine drives me insane because people use this as an excuse to like they do with many things, excuse me, to paint a picture about a state that they already have a preconceived idea about. And it's really, you know, it's really convenient though, though, you know, West Virginia is always already seen as a very red, very conservative, uh, in the mainstream perception, very backwards thinking state. And so this is a great, uh, this is a great figurehead to carry that stereotype, a great, uh, animating figure to do that. But again, it's, it's with anything is like places are complex. They're not, 
you can't categorize a place based on the color of the electoral college map that they show up on. And for example, the same can be said about almost any state in this country. John, how many people voted for Donald Trump in West Virginia? It was roughly 69% of votes cast, but how many votes was that? Do you know? There's 545,000 people that voted for Donald Trump in West Virginia, seen as a humongous Trump stronghold, rightly so. John, the liberal bastion of California, how many people voted for Donald Trump? A million. Wrong. Six million. (laughs) Six million people in the state of California. That is roughly three to four times the size of the entire state of West Virginia. And just but just because borderlines are drawn, we like to associate California with this humongous liberal bastion, which it is in many senses, but there's also a huge part of that state that likes Donald Trump. Okay? So it was only 34% of, of the people that voted. But my point is, is that states are complex. And there's a large part of California, for example, that voted for Donald Trump. And to wrap this up, I, I want to point out why it's so dangerous to do that. Because one, it undermines the work that is going on in this state or states like West Virginia. Because when you say that all people do this, you essentially discount Every person that has boots on the ground that's trying to do something, uh, you know, good for these people. Second, it's also one of those things that allows you to essentially convince people that they're they're not ever going to change West Virginia or a state like West Virginia. And so that just leads to more brain drain. I understand that people are going to leave anyway, but essentially telling people like it's over. This is a this is a place that will never change is only you helping create a stronghold that you don't like. So if you actually started to talk about how you could change things and how change is possible, you'd have more people who think like you come to this state, the stronghold would be depleted and you'd be able to make changes. But by doing what you're, what people are doing now, by just discounting the entire state, you're actually helping that stronghold increase because either it's a person leaves or a person doesn't vote because they don't think their vote matters anymore. And because and that's because of, of people doing these types of tweets and this type of of stereotypical stuff. Yeah, you make a great point that it undermines all the people that are working so hard to try to change things and try to prevent stuff like this from happening. That's a wrap. You heard it. That's uh, just like um, what you get at Quiznos. That's a wrap. Thank you all for listening. Follow us on the social media, especially TikTok. I'm really alarmed by how many followers we've been able to get in the past week. And it's upsetting because at a thousand, I'm going to have to make a video and now I'm going to have to think of what to do in a video. So thank you all so much. Have a wonderful evening.